This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I love that song. Sorry, I just had to let it run for a little bit. This is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, and it has to do with, well, private, private equity firms, to be exact, which are attracting record amounts of investor funds, but for years have faced criticisms that they game their returns. Over the weekend, billionaire Warren Buffett said, yeah. Yeah, I think they might. He joined the chorus of uh, criticisms or critics. Shanali Basak is investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Interesting. What's going on here? And this is, of course, set the stage of what happened over the weekend. Exactly. So it's a kind of a complicated question, right? Whether this is the right return figure to use. All the big firms use um, so-called internal rate of return. But Buffett's critique here is that, well, wait a minute, this is only really calculating cash going in and out of deals. And there's a lot of ways, uh, a lot of critics say there's a lot of ways to game that return. But for a pension fund or an insurance company who's investing in private equity, for a long time, they have money on the sidelines that's pretty much doing nothing. And so your return over the longer horizon is actually not as pretty as that 25 to 30% that the private equity firms are showing. Well, and let's remind folks that Warren Buffett, Uncle Warren, has a bit of a tortured relationship with private equity going back many years. I mean, he's he was quoted years ago saying that he didn't really like private equity as owners because they were in and out too quickly. They don't love the companies enough. And candidly, he's had his own recent misadventure with private equity in some ways, right? Exactly. This whole critique is super interesting because, yes, he mostly doesn't do what private equity does. However, he has also recently worked with 3G Capital, which is a very well-known private equity firm. The whole craft investment, which obviously has not been doing very well, was in conjunction with 3G. Right. And so that's an undertone here for sure that is really hard to um, wrap your head around, really. In many ways, he does what private equity firms do, right, in terms of investing in Privately held companies, but also publicly held companies, but in particular, privately held companies. That's a really, really important part of this entire critique. Uh, in 2014, he used this as an example to say, listen, private equity firms are you know, shoving debt into these companies, but we're not doing that as much, and we will hold you for longer so we can be a potentially better buyer. So by critiquing the private equity industry, he's saying to potential target acquisitions, we may be a better home for you. Did he share with everybody kind of the returns he gets on some of those private investments or those firms and, you know, his investments in private, privately held firms? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, you could look at his whole portfolio, right? I mean, what people don't, this is another kind of wonky thing that's embedded in all this. He uses his insurance companies to buy a lot of these assets and then take them private and keep them under the Berkshire umbrella. So in essence, everything that you're not seeing in the stock investments are those private investments, right? right? Okay. But the interesting thing is, you know, he does use leverage, right? The the insurance company leverage is technically leverage. It's just not the same amount of um, borrowing from a bank that you would see from a typical private equity firm. And and one important thing, I think, and you point this out in your story, Shanali, is that, and Carol, you pointed out in the intro, is that 
you know, Warren Buffett is not alone in making this criticism. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that public pension funds and others have criticized private equity for over time is you can game these numbers all you want. But at the end of the day, what I really care about as a pension, as an investor in private equity is how much money am I getting back and when am I getting it? And so they're more often, it feels like, and Shanali, keep me honest here, they are looking at what is the what is the multiple of return capital uh, rather than just these IRRs that can be, as you say, kind of manipulated uh, to, to make them look good? There's kind of an alphabet soup you can use here on all these different ways to track returns, right? IRR, internal rate of return, is what Buffett criticized. But then what you're mentioning, MOIC, multiples of invested capital, is another way. And in our story, a third way, PME, which yeah. is the public market equivalent. Now you have three different ways to calculate returns and what's the right one. Right. But, I, really but I do think about like all the money, right? We talk constantly about the dry powder that private equity firms are sitting on. And when you're an investor and you give them that money, like you expect it to be put to work. And I, I do wonder, right, the longer they sit yes. on it. You know, Although to what be fair, to- I mean, one thing that, to be clear is that you are committing. You're not actually giving them the money. You're just committing a certain amount of money. So it's not, they're not so they don't sort of sitting it. on it. They but don't there's take a problem with that outside. too. They right. don't take the money, but they're collecting an almost 2% management yes, fee on that exactly. money in the Great first point. five years. Yeah. And that's another issue that Buffett brought up. Uh, you know, all across the asset management industry, you have this great fee pressure. But in the first five years, you have private equity firms that are collecting sometimes 2% that might not either be doing nothing with it right. or right. not something not good in regardless of Unless performance. Unless the returns are out of control later on, right? Then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm willing right. to let them sit And on. that's totally part right. of the reason that, ways. you know, the Steve Schwartzman and Henry Kravitz's of the world have been able to keep investors coming back. I mean, the other criticism, and, and we didn't even get into this, that Warren Buffett has had of private equity and hedge funds over time is the carried interest tax treatment. Um, you know, he has been a, a big critic of that and their ability to pay capital gains on what many people, including Warren Buffett, argue is ultimately ordinary income. Yes. I mean, that's certainly a thing. And they didn't even bring that up this weekend. But right. that's, definitely, that's definitely a real question. And it's really um, poignant that you bring it up right now, because when we're talking about tax treatment of the ultra wealthy, this is definitely something that's coming up in conversations, even outside of the Warren Buffett realm, for sure. What right. Was, what Came was up the, a little bit at Milken. What was, yeah. Right. Exactly. What was hmm. the feeling just quickly, like the, in terms of the tone of Warren Buffett this weekend? Um, he and, was and everybody else on stage. Cool, calm, and collected. But if you read what he was saying, it was quite aggressive, right? I mean, he definitely made a nuanced critique. And uh, Charlie Munger, right, uh, vice chairman, had come out uh, kind of with the snippier, more um, uh, remarks about the industry. Uh, so it, he definitely took his share of criticism as well for some investments that he may not have done as well on, like Kraft. Right. But he, you know, he was classic Buffett. He was right. cool, calm, and And also facing some questions, and Chanel, you know this better than we do, around Amazon. Yeah, he's getting in. Mm-hmm. Apple, he's gotten in. But, you know, some people saying, you're a value investor. Where were you when these were a real value. <laughs> Something interesting about Buffett, and I know um, Ruan Cunef also like shares this view, they invest in what they know, but they won't invest in what they don't know. Yeah. So while they'll acknowledge they missed out on Google, for example, right. they'll say, you know, we do like what we did invest in. Right. So It's very much the Peter Lynch model uh, way back when. Shanali Basak, thank you, thank you. Investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, our next guest has a new book out. It's called Pivot to the Future, Discovering Value and Creating Growth in a Disrupted World. And if there is one thing that we know about this world we're living in, Carol Masser, it is one of disruption. 
Larry Downs is with us. He's senior fellow at Accenture Research. He joins us on the phone from Berkeley, California. Larry, great to have you back with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. So tell us about this book. Tell us how it came about. You've got a team who, who worked on this with you. Yeah, I've been working uh, with uh, Accenture for several years now on looking at how technology is changing industries. And in, interesting enough, this book, one of the focuses is how technology is changing their own business. So Accenture, is, as you may know, has gone through a tremendous uh, change over the last five years. They're, they're twice as big, and they've changed the, the kind of business they're in. And a lot of the lessons we learned and what we looked for in the, in the supplemental research was sort of figuring out, well, how did they do it and, and what worked and what didn't? So what does this mean, this wise pivot? Well, the idea is that, you know, because uh, technology is disrupting things and we've got a whole list of new technologies coming that will continue to do so, this sort of fad of of business transformation, this kind of one-time big change, just doesn't work. If it ever did, it certainly won't work in the future. And so the idea of the wise pivot is that you continue to invest in your current businesses as well as even some of your legacy businesses while at the same time you're preparing for the future. And you kind of keep cycling through these different uh, time frames uh, in, in order to sort of stay as far ahead of the disruption as you can. So, Larry, give us, give us some examples from the book, because I think, you know, consultants especially are uh, given and, and you have a, a good history of cutting through all of this. But I would imagine you run into a lot of consultants in your work, not naming names or firms, uh, you know, who are like sort of say a bunch of words and they sort of give you some general guidelines. But when the rubber meets the road, what are some changes that you either saw internally at, at Accenture or as you talk to other people that you could point to that demonstrate what you're talking about? Sure. So, I mean, I'll just I'll give you a great example, which is uh, Netflix. You know, people may not remember what they started out doing was mailing out DVDs uh, to people. That's before they got into streaming, and that's before they got into original content. And those were two really big pivots that they made in a relatively short amount of time as technology made it possible for them to do so. But what we point out in the book is that they never gave up on the other businesses uh, prematurely. So, in fact, they still have a very significant part of their business, a profitable part of their business, we think, which is sending out DVDs, perhaps to people who um, you know, don't want to do streaming or who don't live somewhere where there's fast enough Internet for that to be reliable. Um, and they use that not only to continue to derive revenue, which you need to invest in the future, but also for frankly, that's where they started to learn, you know, the metrics and the analytics about, well, what are people watching? What do they like? And therefore, what should we produce by way of original content? I think what's really insightful is this whole idea. It's not just one pivot, but you got to keep changing. And I think in this environment where we are constantly talking about upstarts, new companies coming in, figuring out how to do something, streamline differently, and really feed into what either the business or retail consumer wants, you've got to constantly be changing because if not, somebody else will and you'll be lost in terms of the marketplace. Yeah, that's right. And we talk a lot about retail in a particular example. You know, obviously, we're looking at all these closures and bankruptcies and, and, and stores going out of business. But, you know, it's not that people stop shopping. Right? People are still buying things. Right. They just wanted, uh, they wanted it to be more convenient. They wanted it to be more personalized. They wanted it to be more responsive. And some incumbent retailers, you know, Walmart in particular, have done a great job of, of using the technology to, uh, to enhance their business while others, you know, fell behind and, and of course, were, were, were gone thanks to uh, e-commerce and, and other startups that uh, didn't, weren't afraid to break rules. 
So, Larry, about 30 seconds to go here. Give us a sense, because you've taught at a number of uh, very well-known business schools. How does this change the curriculum as we're trying to change or train, I should say, uh, the next generation of leaders? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. Thank you, Jason. So I, I think the main thing is it, it's in terms of strategy. Uh, certainly when I've been at business school and I've taught at business schools or lectured, uh, the idea of strategy, it's very static. The way it's taught in business schools, people assume, you know, while you're off making your five-year plan, the market kind of stays still, technology stays still. That was a terrible idea 20 years ago. Uh, it's an even worse idea now and yeah. certainly in the near future. So we'd, we'd like to see much more dynamic uh, approaches to strategy and, frankly, much more pragmatic approaches like we do in the book. Right, exactly. Great stuff. Larry Downs is Senior Fellow at Accenture Research. The new book, Pivot to the Future, Discovering Value and Creating Growth in a Disrupted World. He joined us on the phone from Berkeley, California. So concerns over completion of a U.S.-China trade deal definitely front and center today. It's impacted the financial markets, although, as you heard Charlie say, uh, stocks definitely off their lows of the session. Let's get some thoughts, though, on that trade deal as well as some insight into China, more specifically China's Belt and Road Initiative. Andy Brown is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Timely story, and we'll get into that in just a moment, but talk to us about what we saw happen this morning. A couple of tweets from the president, uh, investors getting nervous about what will happen between the U.S. and China when it comes to a trade deal. How do you see it? Okay, so I, I mean, the big question is, in terms of these two tweets, is this a gambit, a negotiating tactic by Trump aimed at getting another 5-10% out of the Chinese on concessions ahead of, ahead of the mm-hmm. uh, deal? Uh, or is it something much more fundamental? Uh, to me, it looks for all the world like two major global leaders playing chicken and each one of them thinking that their economy is doing well and giving them leverage over the other. I mean, the Chinese economy is, has perked up quite a bit in the last in the last few weeks. Right. You had these great April uh, jobs numbers out of the U.S. You had a roaring first quarter. And I think each of them may be thinking that, or certainly Xi Jinping may be thinking that, you know, he gave a little bit too much away. The South China Morning Post in Hong Kong reports that she believed that his negotiators uh, had given away too much and took something off the table. And this was what Trump was reacting to. But- and, and so who does have the upper hand? I mean, you know both of these markets so well, especially the, the China market, having lived there for a long time and covered it so intensely. Uh, who, who's got the upper hand here? I mean, it's really, it's really hard to say. This is, this is going to be, and I, I, look, I think what this is illustrated in, in China, every, every, anybody who's done business in China knows that the deal is not the end of a negotiating right. process. It is the very beginning. And what the two sides seem to be arguing about now is implementation of the deal, encoding the deal into law. The Chinese are reluctant to do that, which rather makes the whole thing look from the U, to the U.S. side like empty promises. But what markets have been expecting this trade deal be all end all, and then we'll, we'll, we'll all be back to the races. Forget it. This is going to be a long and really deeply disruptive and volatile process. All right. So the process will continue. Speaking of a long process, I mean, China has really laid out a lot when it comes to their priorities going forward, and that includes the Belt and Road Initiatives. You have a story out there on the terminal, and it talks about some of the five myths of this. Go right. through that, Andy. 
Yeah, so it just seems to me that, that you know, there's a, a perception has taken hold in much of the world. This is all about a Chinese investment blitzkrieg, uh, you know. To dominate so, the world. Right, take <laughs> o- right, exactly. Take take over the planet. You know, and next thing you know, it's going to be boots on the ground, Chinese armies marching down the highways that they've built, Chinese naval ships pulling into the ports that Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises have expanded all the way to Piraeus and Greece and Tri- in Italy and so on. And the reality is actually a lot more subtle and a lot more nuanced and a lot more complicated. And one of the things that people look to Belt and Road and, and maybe get wrong, according to uh, what you're talking about, is is the cost. You know, right. the, this, this price tag is just, we can't even get our heads around it. What are we getting wrong there? Yeah, so, so some of the estimates for this are, are just completely nuts. I mean, $8 trillion. Um, you know, you always have to draw a distinction between what China promises and what it delivers, mm-hmm. okay? So, you know, the groups that are actually tracking what China has spent on Belt and Road, and bear in mind that everybody is now calling this a trillion-dollar, you know, project right. initiative. Okay, so for between 2014, 2017, first three years of Belt and Road, actual investments made was about 340 billion dollars all right so okay it's a it's a chunk of cash uh but it's not world you know it's not world changing the asia development bank estimates that developing asia countries in in, in developing countries in asia will need 1.7 trillion dollars a year just to keep their uh, their growth going to battle uh, combat poverty uh, and to make themselves resilient to climate change so even if it is a trillion even if it's two two trillion dollars right you know it's it's not everything but that's a good point andy you know we the magazine has done a lot of stories about China's moves into developing markets that are rich with commodities that China right. ultimately will need and how they're helping them with you know, their infrastructure or development and as a, or as a result creating a lot of debt for those developing economies and ultimately they'll be beholden to the Chinese. Are we not seeing that kind of loop? You, you, you sort of are seeing that, but the way that it gets phrased, which is Chinese debt trap diplomacy, and you hear this all yeah. the time, you know, Mike Pence talks about this constantly, and it's not quite that. I mean, the, so the idea of debt trap diplomacy is that China overlends to poor countries, and when they can't, when they default, then China goes in and grabs assets. So right. there's only actually been one concrete example of that, which was in Sri Lanka and the port of Hambantota. Um, so it, it, it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. Now, now is, is China Chinese lending sustainable? Not at all. You know, Chinese lending is is sort of willy nilly. I mean, you know, they, they don't really seem to give to care much about risk. Um, it, it's sort of random. It's haphazard. It's clumsy rather than malevolent. And this willy nilly nature is another thing that you talk about. This idea that you know this is not maybe this well executed grand strategy that Xi Jinping is like sort of methodically laying out across the world. Right, it's 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 different things to different people. I yeah. mean, it is not one. Is it not the Roman Empire? Right. So, sure, part of it, as you mentioned, is China's quest for natural resources, including energy. You know, mm-hmm. another part of it is China wanting to build its brands and sell brands, high speed rail, five G networks. Part of it is China exporting its industrial capacity. Part of it, sure, is ensuring that countries on its periphery are more entwined into the Chinese economic sphere of influence and therefore more willing to take on board uh, Chinese positions when it comes to foreign policy right. and security. Which is what every nation does. 
or certainly every right. developed nation, right? Right. So, the, you know, the real question now for the U.S. is is, is how it responds to all this. So right? how does all of this kind of figure into as the U.S.-China trade negotiations go on? Because it does sound like, for, certainly from the U.S. perspective, that we may be misreading a lot of this in terms of China's moves. Right. So big, big picture of Belt and Road is a test of whether the United States is going to be able to accept China as a rising power and a potential peer. You know, 10 years from now, it's going to have roughly the same GDP. And right now, the response from the United States is stiff. Um, bad mouth, pretend it's not happening. And that's really not a realistic policy. Is there one difference, though, that China is thinking much more global versus what the United States is doing for sure. kind of pushing back? I mean, There's what, a contrast, right? Right. One thing you can say for sure is that this demonstrates Xi Jinping's global vision in, in, you know, in stark contrast to Donald Trump's you know, rather narrow America first view of the world. Andy Brown, always great to catch up with you. You are the editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy and the upcoming, it's going to be here before you know it, New Economy Forum over in Asia. This week in Bloomberg Business Week magazine, a look at a fleet of startups developing products for women by women. Uh, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, is in the house, along with Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And oh, if you were a fly on the wall before we got started, because we were having some fun conversations. Um, Mainly just about Paul's ability to pick great songs that go <laughs> yeah. with the articles we're going to talk it's about. It's a given. He's yeah. just so yeah. consistent How much about time that. Does he spend? He doing spends that? a lot yeah. of time. It's when he says, "Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me." <laughs> Because he's got his headphones on. He's, he's getting all our music. Busy. So tell us what's going on. Busy, and what you guys, working. <laughs> he is busy. And what you guys wanted to do or how this kind of came to your attention. So beauty is a space that I think is a really fascinating one. Tiffany's on the consumers team. And so it was just a space that we started kicking around back and forth with the team for a while. And Tiffany was like, ooh, 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 ooh I got it. I got it. <laughs> so what'd you find? It's not just Glossier. It's not just Glossier. It's not just beauty products. There are suddenly a lot of women starting health, wellness, beauty, and personal care companies. You know, women traditionally were the biggest consumers in this space. They didn't always dominate the business side. Now that that's happening, we're seeing a lot of really interesting startups and innovations. Well, and one of the things you point out in your story is that some of these companies and some of these products are born literally of pain, right? I mean, that's right. It's people sort of experience a something. Yeah. It's a cliche. People talk about what the pain points yeah. are. Um, but indeed, you know, a lot of these women had personal missions they were on because of something that happened to them in their lives. Well, and what's interesting, too, and I do wonder, you guys, whether things like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and Jessica Alba and her company, like we see uh, very prominent, often actresses or celebrity types, but they are creating companies and they're, they've got a lot of momentum behind them, also money behind them. Big money. Yeah. How much money are we talking, Tiffany? Uh, well, some of these companies have, you know gone from just crowdfunding, so actually not a lot of money, and others have, you know, 51 or 15 million, something small, from venture capital, and they don't need as much money as they used to because they can sell direct to consumer, they don't need shelf space uh, at Target or Walmart, and they can use influencers. Yeah, and that direct consumer thing has enabled um, companies like Glossier, right? Like, you can go from basically startup to billion-dollar brand in like a matter of years now if you hit it right. And that has really just been possible because, in part because of the Instagram economy. And I think you go trolling on Instagram for, for beauty accounts and it turns into this endless wormhole that now you can shop through. 
I have to say, just coming from the West Coast, like San Francisco, where you go to marketplaces and there's just a plethora of products created by individuals. And I personally am drawn to those kinds of companies. Like, you know, and I feel like they're very sensitive to ingredients and how things are made. I just feel like that is a happening. You're a sucker. I am a sucker. That's what my husband says. What did you buy? What is this? I mean, look at Sephora and Ulta that have grown up to, you know, serve that sort of interest. You're not alone, for sure. And those are, you know, that's the other thing is interesting about this there's the entrepreneurs who are, are are basically doing it themselves but then there's the bigger platform plays like the sephoras of the world how do those two interact well i mean you don't need to be in those stores certainly a lot of these startups have shown that shown that but it certainly does give them a platform we also see you know a ton of small boutiques popping up right. around new york we've seen you know bloomingdale's redo its floor and have a lot more small brands what was the what was the company we talked to um, that was in the magazine? It's a South Korean startup. They're online. Peach and Lily. Peach and Lily. Yeah, Jason's yeah. all over that. Yeah, all over it. See, I remember. I hey. listen. Uh, so, give us a couple examples. What were the what were your favorites? Because we were joking before we came on that you were probably inundated with ideas. Once people learned you were working on this, they wanted their uh, product or their company highlighted. Which what are two that jumped out at you? I thought one of the really interesting ones was um, Lovebug, where they're making probiotics for kids. You know, that was a space that I think a lot of people um, had been interested in. And another was Evolve by Nature, where, um, you know, it's a silk-based skincare. Obviously, there's something interesting that silk can do because um, these two co-founders had sold something to Allergan in the past. And what's, wow, funding, $51 million to date. These companies, in your conversations with them, are they having trouble, though, accessing co- uh, capital? It certainly doesn't seem it like doesn't it. It doesn't seem that way. Because well, we've done stories, too, that just talk about you know venture capitalists. They're not so quick to lend to women or for, provide funding. And I'm just curious what you guys are hearing. Well, I think it's because there's this critical mass that's kind of started. I, yeah. th- I think you get investors who feel like there's a little bit more confidence because it's like, boy, if I don't have skin in this game, maybe I'm missing out, <laughs> right? But speaking of skin, the other thing that I thought was really fascinating about this was the transparency that the marketplace really expects, right? So, And that comes down to ingredients. So mm-hmm. when you talk to some of these entrepreneurs, like what, what do they recognize was the turning point between the old way of doing things and, and sort of this new transparent front lines that they're, they're excelling at? Yeah, they definitely realize that they need to have all their ingredients listed, that that's a big selling point. And I think some of them are turning to, you know, outside verification, too, because consumers can go read a long list of products and not necessarily know what that means. Yeah, exactly. And I do find that that's something people are more and more reading as a consumer, right? We want to know what's in there. We don't want a laundry list of stuff. Well, and it also feels like we've only got about 20 seconds left that increasingly these companies are having a social... uh, element to what they do giving away something to giving away a product to those less fortunate when you buy something sort of the tom's uh tom's model to some extent uh tiffany carey consumer reporter for bloomberg this story doing very well on the terminal a fleet of startups developing products for women by women joel weber of course is the editor of bloomberg business week he joins us each day with some of the most interesting things either in or coming up in the magazine I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive, baby. We can reach our destiny. 
This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Hillary Kramer, president and chief investment officer of A&G Capital Research, back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. She works in the hood, so she stopped by to uh, bring us up to date on what has been a little bit of a confusing market in the sense (laughs) that it just keeps going up today. A little bit of an exception, but even today, it feels like the market wants to pull out a gain. What's going on? This stock market is going to keep going up and it's defying gravity, but it's simply because of the Federal Reserve. I never thought the impossible would happen, but I think the Fed will cut rates. And as long as rates are going to be cut means borrowing is cheaper and uh, this market is going to just keep marching forward. Although, of course, take a look at all these IPOs. It is a sign of the top, having been through a few of the cycles in my 30 years. But does it feel like the 99-2000 top? It actually feels worse in many ways because really? the, all these valuations are so high and we have such a such a wealth gap. I mean, we really do have these billionaires that have been created that makes us all feel like because of the data that the economy is so much better and unemployment at all time lows. But the reality is that we really don't have an upper middle class anymore. We don't have a middle upper class. We have a lot of jobs for baristas. Mm-hmm. So, you know? so wait, so let's, let's unpack that. I hate that phrase, but I'm going to use it because I think you make some really great points. But there's, yes, this inequality in our society right now about the rich getting richer and no middle class and folks really still struggling despite what the data shows us. And then you have the financial markets. I mean, should we separate those two? I mean, the fundamentals that stocks are trading on, does that make sense? Um, and it's, you know what I mean? Like they're kind of, I, know, I feel like I hate right. to separate them, but Carol, you're absolutely right. It, and it's, and it's been separated. It's been bifurcated for years now because the stock market continues to rise. And, and again, and that will still be the case. Now with rates coming down, it does make it easier to borrow. So for those that want to be first time home buyers, those that might want to expand or make some investments, banks out there like, I like some of these regional banks, yeah. like, like Valley National, VLY, First Hawaiian, FHB. These these nice high dividend yields at around 4%. And these are companies that are going to start uh, opening the coffers again because they can, because of the Federal Reserve. You know, one name that, that came up earlier with our Dave Wilson, our stocks guru, was Caterpillar. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's a name that people have been looking at as a little bit of a proxy for all this trade back and forth. How do you approach a name like that, given all this uncertainty and things turning on a tweet? I look, a, I look at the situation on a macro level, especially China. I think that's what really determines a company like Cat and Cat's popularity and Cat's ability to, to sort of catch a bid here. Um, and it's the same with other companies out there. Um, take a look at something like 3M. You know, they, they reported they were down 10%, but you look at a company like that and, and there's still these algorithms out there and there's still uh, sort of a desperation to find, to find names and to invest in them and to, keep, and to keep marching higher. Well, and part of the reason you like CAT is the yield, right? I mean, like there's... Look, there's... You, have the, you have the dividend yield. Yeah. There's still the demand. CAT, to me, really hasn't disappointed the way other companies have disappointed. I mean, look, compare Caterpillar to Apple. Apple is like is 
is basically the estimates are down 10% from they were from where they were beginning of the year. And then you look at, at Caterpillar and the numbers look pretty good and pretty strong there. And there's still demand and there's going to be flight to safety into the U.S. And a lot of the noise is going to and a lot of the noise is going to dissipate. And uh, and look, it's going to be interesting. You know, Caterpillar's also tied. I mean, it's tied to a lot of areas, including energy. Uh, well, actually, Exxon Mobil doesn't even look so bad here. We're going, you know, we're going to see with Venezuela um, issues around Russia. There's there's still there's still global demand. There's still interest. Do you don't like this buying. market? I don't like. I haven't liked it for years. But you got. <laughs> but if you want to make money, but you're not shorting it. No, never. This is going to keep going up until the next presidential election because I. I really feel that Federal Chairman Powell. He first wanted to rein in these rates. He's going to. He's going to tighten. It really made sense. We were really getting kind of fired up here. Things were getting like overheated, and then suddenly, as dinner with uh, with President Trump, and and now like then rates stay the same, and now it's even a matter of potentially cutting rates. And look what happened with the market last week. Upset that rates weren't cut. We're really feeling entitled. Uh, and 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 it's a market that really isn't realistic. And when you ask me, Carol, to compare this to uh, the the IPO boom of of the internet of ninety nine two thousand, this doesn't feel like Pets dot com to me. It just well, che- Chewy dot com is going public. I'm excited about that one. I will invest in there, but that's not really you, your point. Do you know what your I'm saying? Your point is, is that you, well, is you that literally we, would put dot com on the end of a name. The company wasn't even around right. for a year, and you know it's off to the races. Right, but a lot of individuals got into it and got involved in it. And a lot of individual investors got so hurt, they've never come back in the game, or they came back in the game finally in 07, 08, and then they got burned again. But the point is, you look at these valuations, and that's really where I'm at with this. Yeah. Like, look at Uber, and I know you had this whole conversation about Goldman Sachs not being an Uber, but having invested $5 million, isn't that what yeah. we, you know, yeah. what, what we're all talking about? But we're talking about eight, six. nine years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and so when when you're talking about companies going public that are really going public just to cash out. And not making money. These They're rounds, not profitable, right? Right. All just to cash out all of these rounds of investors that came in in the, in the sort of like... Um, uh, not not in the not in the main street way, but came in through Silicon Valley and right. came in through through the, the the quiet boardrooms of doing deals, and I think that's what makes this unfair. Look at look at Lyft down. Yeah. Where are we now? We're down about twenty percent. And I don't disagree with your idea that these inequalities are not good. Right? We just came off a week of Milken, and that's the whole idea of shared prosperity, and it was definitely front and center and on everybody's minds because it, it it penetrated every discussion that we had <laughs> on air and in our panel. Um, but I do wonder if it's separate from what we're seeing in the market. Speaking of California, we can't let you go without asking you about avocados. <laughs> um, Carol's got to get her avocado toast. We had some goes to San great Francisco. avocado toast we did. in San look, Francisco. Look, my, my, my point with avocados, and everyone who knows me knows I've been bullish on CVGW Calavo for three years now. We've made money on this one. It came down a bit. But the reality is be a macro investor, right? Think about George Soros. No matter what you might think of George Soros, I love the way he invests. Macro investing. The trends have changed. Everyone's eating avocados. The distribution is there of avocados. The acceptance is there. It it, it all meets all of the criteria 
that's the way to and invest. It, can I just say it makes just about everything better? It does. <laughs> and as you say, even if you're selling China, it's a good day to buy Mexico. All right. Hillary Kramer, President and Chief Investment Officer, ANG Capital Research, based here in New York City, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.